But Paul said to them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now, do not uh, do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Let me plug this in so it doesn't turn off on me. Again, this is one of those portions of the scripture that I think most of us are quite familiar with. I really appreciated the thoughts that our brother Ken shared last week, particularly how, beginning in verse 6, you had this whole process of the guidance of God. Go here, don't go there, and all of that, and how challenging that is to each one of us about the direction of God and his leading, and do we know for sure, or do we have an idea, and so forth. And so, uh, and then he, he did a nice job of kind of highlighting the different sections, but I wanted to take a little time and go through a few more of the details within the portion because there are some things here that I do find fascinating and again as we study the scripture it always amazes me as you look at it again you discover something you never saw before and so as we begin by thinking about this lady Lydia I would draw our attention to the fact that this is a new section far as I understand, the end of the last section we were in is when uh, the uh, beginning part of chapter 16 where uh, Paul uh, took and had uh, Timothy circumcised. As Ken brought out, the whole issue in chapter 15 was circumcision wasn't necessary and now he was doing it. And, and it seems as though that was deliberate to draw our attention to the fact that if you do it for a different reason other than buying your way to heaven, it's not out of line. And he did it because he did not want to create an obstacle between him and those from Jewish background. And so you begin to see then in this section uh, another uh, direction that, that Paul is going. One of the things that was brought to my attention is that in the early chapters you have the Messages by Peter, the message by Stephen, the message by Paul, and there's a great deal of content to them. And these messages are going to get briefer in terms of the things that are said, and the focus is going to become a little bit different in the sense of what is being focused on. But they're dealing with the issue of Christianity now and the pagan world, and that seems to be the theme that's going to be coming out in these next several chapters. You have this pagan world. What do they know about God? How, how do they know God exists? And so these are some things that are going to be coming up. Another thing that I think fascinated me that I don't know that I ever noticed before, my memory is getting so bad that I learned things new several times, but as far as I know, I never knew this before. And that was that in the beginning of our chapter, we have the guidance of God, the way that God guides his believers. But right in the middle of our chapter, we have this young lady who was guided by the demonic world. And you have this contrast between the guidance of God and the guidance of the demonic world. And I never saw that contrast, but that's clearly part of the section. 
Uh, I think as Ken brought out, that if there were not more than 10 men around, they would not have a synagogue. They would not have a meeting of the, the Jewish believers, uh, Jewish people, and so these women were faithful. Whether Lydia lived in, uh, in the city here now or whether she was just visiting, I am not sure. It appears as though she may have been living there for a time. But nonetheless, what is exciting is the fact that the two parties came together and that uh, Paul and uh, Silas had come and were among them and that as Ken brought out that uh, she worshiped God. You know, and it reminds me of the men that we have looked at in the past, the Ethiopian man and Cornelius and this man Saul. And how God knows each and every heart. He knows what's going on there. And God seems to build on the things that people have seen about who God is. And so this woman was ripe. She was ready for the harvest. And so she responds uh, to these things. And it says in verse 14, The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And then it says, when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And so we have this uh, reminder that she has already been baptized. And I think you might remember from some of our other, other studies that when it says she constrained us, that that is an incredibly strong word. It's only used in uh, Luke 24 where the two on the road took the Lord Jesus and constrained him. And literally the picture is you grab them by the arms and you won't let them go. And so it wasn't, would you just have uh, some time with us? It was, she literally latched onto him and said, A with us, all right? So very powerful uh, picture in, in the way the word is used. And so uh, they spent the time with them. And then it says in verse 16 that it says it happened as they went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with the spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. Now, I don't know exactly how all that went. Uh, Dr. Ironside says that uh, the, the word, some of the words used with it might have been uh, Apollo and, and connected to that and all of those kind of things. And I think of it today in the modern day terms of people who will go to a fortune teller and you will pay money to have your fortune told. But what I always find intriguing is they always tell you uh, things that are sort of vague but could potentially be in your future, you know, and and so it's really things that would happen in everyday life, but when that happens tomorrow, you say, oh, guidance of God, right? And remember what Randy Amos said, if you're ever talking to a fortune teller, don't ask him to tell you what's going to happen tomorrow. Ask him to tell you what you did yesterday, and you'll find out just how much they know. And so, but, but, but people have that natural tendency to want to know the future, and whether, you know, it's like if you bet on a football game and you know ahead of time who's going to win, you could make an awful lot of money. But I don't know that it was that accurate of fortune telling. I have no idea. But she made those who owned her uh, a lot of money. And so the woman was following Paul and Silas in verse 17. 
And she says, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And so that expression, the Most High God, reminds me of those verses in, uh, I think it's somewhere around Genesis 14, where Melchizedek comes onto the scene. And you have this idea of this absolutely unique God. And as I read these words, I'm like, hey, this is awesome, right? The Most High God and tell us the way of salvation. But I think we need to be cautious. And as I read the different writers on this, they're of either opinion. Yes, she was speaking of the truth of God, or it was she was trying to look good in, in, in light of this and to try to, in a sense, draw a connection between the God of these men and the gods that they were serving and kind of put credibility to who she was. And so I really don't have a, a real good answer about that, um, but I do think that, uh, you know, uh, think of the verse in chapter Mark chapter 5 when he says, he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. And that's a demon uh, speaking. And so that's why some think that, you know, it was in a positive sense. But regardless of what the sense was, this was going on for many days. As it says in verse uh, 18, this she did for many days. And so you try to picture Paul and Silas going about doing their stuff, right? And this girl, you know, saying things like this in the background, right? You know, like you see Donald Trump and the hecklers that are, you know, bugging him for the things that he, I'm trying to be neutral in what I say. Um, but, you know, you, you see people making comments, you know, uh, uh, and is it a help or is it a hindrance, you know? But you finally read that Paul gets annoyed or distressed. So that's part of the reason why I think he did not look favorably on this. Because if he thought it was positive, why would he become annoyed, you know? And so he, he looks and he says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And the scripture simply says, and he came out that very hour. Now, again, a little phrase I hadn't noticed. He came out. He, not feminine, but masculine. And again, one of the things is that demons are fallen angels. And if I understand it correctly, nowhere in the scripture are angels referred to in the feminine. Always the masculine. So it's interesting because I would have thought she might have a female demon since she was a female, right? But he came out of her. And so I like the fact that it was stated and it was so. There was no delay. This was the power of God and it happened immediately. And so <clears throat> the next part of it, though, is in verse uh, uh, 19 where we read about uh, the, uh, the uh, masters saw that their hope for profit was gone. Isn't it amazing how the wheels of reason can turn so well in some areas and yet not so well in others? They're like, oh no, there, there goes our means of making money. And so they made the connection right away. Uh-oh, you know, we've lost our source of income. 
You remember the story of the man that was possessed by the legion of demons? Were the people happy that uh, the, the demons had been released from the man? No. Why? Because all of their money literally went down the drain, or should I say down the hill into the water, right? And so money often dictates the values that people have. And so here were these men, and all they could think about was, oh, we, we've lost our source of income. And so what do they do? It says that in... Uh, Verse 19, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And so I try to picture the situation. This woman's been following them. The, the, her owners must be somewhere around the perimeter to have seen this happening. And they cast this demon out and they seize them. Would that be a normal response to seize them? You know, and again, you just see just the, the desperate need of man that instead of rejoicing, they seize him, treat him like hardened criminals, like bank robbers, you know. And so they seize them and they drag them off to the marketplace to the authorities. And so they bring them in verse 20 to the magistrates and said, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or uh, observe. Now think about their accusation. What does this have to do with what Paul and Silas are telling them? We don't know specifically of what they said, right, in terms of their different preaching. And they've been preaching for days, so I don't know the details of what they have said. But I think it's interesting that one could say that they have played the race card again. So funny how people do this. If you can't handle the truth of something, you create another picture. And so they're creating this issue about these guys being uh, Jewish. And they're troubling our city and they're teaching us customs which are not lawful for us. Now let me ask you a question. Are they teaching them to observe the law that the Jews would follow? I certainly hope not. The whole issue that we've been dealing with before this is that they're not under the law. So I ask the question, why are they raising the issue of the Jewish background? Why not the issue of the Christian background? And again, I don't have an answer for it. But Christianity is just begin beginning. Judaism has already been there. And there was often that issue of, the political side of Judaism, right? And this Jesus is a king, and they crucified him because he had no allegiance to Caesar and all of the things that they tried to perpetrate, right? So it seems to me that they were wise in what they tried to do to kind of fuel the anger of the people. And so they raised this whole issue. And, uh, and so fascinating that they did not deal with the issue of the Christianity. And as I said, true biblical Christianity does not attack governmental structures, does it? It deals with the issue of the person and their heart toward God. And he leaves the government issue to be secondary to all of this. But since they couldn't really do anything else, they were playing the race card and trying to stir the people up. And so... Uh, we read then in verse 22 
that the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. So as you picture this situation, do you picture this as an orderly situation, or do you picture this as a mob rule scene, you know, where people are just rote emotion, just going berserk, right? And so he stirred them up. And that's going to happen some more, by the way, as we get in further into the book of Acts, right? Where the, the people are just stirred up by the, the, the emotions. And so I read it that uh, the, the people are all fired up. Uh, they literally just rip off their outer clothes and they begin to beat them with rods. And one of the things I find interesting is if I understand it, you are supposed to do the beating in an orderly way and only up to a certain number. But it doesn't suggest to me that this was any bit orderly, and I wonder if they're just beating on them without even thinking about how much they're doing. But it's a pretty gruesome scene. But one of the things that I think is healthy for us to think about is here you are, Paul and Silas. You're going about, and you're trying to speak for the truth of God, and you go about this day like any other day, and so let's say they've been there for a week, and Day one goes like this, day two goes like this, and this particular day you get up and you go about and Paul casts out the demon out of her and then all of a sudden all this other stuff happens. Did they have any idea that this was going to happen to them that day? And so, you know, it really does challenge us that we have no idea what a day will bring forth. No idea whatsoever. And so... Uh, but we see this, all these things happening in such a way that you're like, wow, that is some crazy turn of events. I mean, all they did was cast a demon out of the woman. Why would you end up being beaten as if you were some kind of a terrible criminal? And yet the people go crazy. They're wailing on them. And, and as they go through this, uh, the, uh, the, they say uh, in verse 23, when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. And so they had beaten them up, and now they had taken and thrown them in prison. And I think it's interesting, as you think of where we have come in the book of Acts, to consider some of the other situations where people were put in prison. Uh, like in chapter... Uh, I think it's chapter uh, 5, you have an incident where they're constrained, right? And let's just look at a couple of those things just to kind of, again, as I always find as you get a chance to contrast things, you begin to see the differences and the similarities, but um, I think it was in chapter 5. Uh, <clears throat> remember, this was after they had healed the man who had been lame, chapter 3. And uh, in chapter 4, then, uh, verse 2, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in, in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, that they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Now, they put them in custody. I don't know if that was literally prison, but they apprehended them and they kept them overnight. But remember, at the end of this whole situation, all they can do is verbally reprimand them. But because the people saw this as the power of God, they were hesitant to do anything worse than that. 
So all that happened to them was that they were chastised and said, don't do this in the name of Jesus, right? But here in our situation, they're in a whole new area. And now there's not a group of people that will sympathize with what they're saying. And so now there's kind of free reign. And, you know, you think of this with what goes on in the Muslim world. You know, if a Christian goes there or up in the north of India, right? Some of the things that go on up in the north of India. Just like this. I mean, totally insane. The people go crazy. And there's nobody to really back the Christians because they're such a minority. And so you have that. Then you have the one in chapter 12 where um, Peter had been put into prison. And in chapter 12, when Peter is in prison, again, a, a very different context. Uh, but here uh, in chapter 12, uh, he's sleeping, right? Uh, and the angel comes in. Remember, he whacks him on the ribs and says, get up. And they go walking out and they just keep walking out and they just go right out. And it says somewhere along the way that uh, in verse 11, uh, well, let's read verse 10, chapter 12, verse 10. But when they were past the first and the second guard post, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down in the street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod, and so forth. And so Peter's having a hard time putting all this together. You know, he's asleep. This angel wakes him up. The gate just opens of its own. I mean, this is pretty eerie, right? It's just weird. And he, I think he thinks he's kind of caught up in a vision. And so here's how God does it in that situation, and he just takes them out. Remember the one in chapter 5, uh, I think it's chapter 5, one of the other ones, when they were released from prison, where did they go? But right back preaching where they started from. You would think that they would run for the hills. But no, they went back and preached. So these prison situations are unique in themselves, and each one has a little different flavor to it. And so they are thrown into prison, and uh, they are to be kept securely. And so it says, then, having received such a charge, verse 24, chapter 16, verse 24, it says, having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Well, you know, I did a little bit of re uh, reading on what it was meant for them to be in these stocks. And I don't know if they are wood, you know, like uh, who was it that used to use the stocks in the, the Puritans, right? And we can all picture, at least Americans picture them, you know, when you visited the sites, we as kids love to put our heads in the thing and have our two hands like this and you take a picture, right? Uh, I would not exactly call that a comfortable place to hang out for a while. And so, uh, so they put them in these stocks and, and one writer seems to think that they were something like that, but that they were clasped around the legs. And so you'd be like, you know, between two logs with a little thing hollowed out and you're, you're locked in there. So number one, you couldn't hop your way out of there because the log was too heavy anyway. But here's what I thought was interesting. He said, if you're in those, you have the choice of either standing up all night or sitting down 
or lying on your back, which has just been beaten severely. And so no matter what you're doing, this is not what you're going to call the Ritz and a comfortable night of sleep, right? This is going to be just dreadfully uncomfortable. And so this is what they put them in. And it says then that um, they put them in the inner prison. And so far as I can see, the inner prison logically would be the hardest place to get out of because you got to go many levels, like we read in 12 when they go past the first and the second. And so, so you put them in the center, and it's that much harder to get out. So these guys are being treated like the worst of criminals being put in the inner prison and being dealt with in that way. And so uh, they fasten their feet in stock. And then we get to what it says in, uh, in verse uh, in verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And the prisoners were listening to them. How many of you remember that phrase, and the prisoners were listening to them? You remember that from your early readings? Well, I, I wanted to do a stupid little experiment here, so I'm going to ask you to close your eyes for a minute, all right? And you picture yourselves sitting in prison. And this is what I think it could be like. So you got your eyes closed? You know, I know that's stupid, but remember, if you're in a, in, a, in a stone cavity and somebody is whispering, I think you can hear what they're saying. And so, you know, these guys are stuck in there and they are praying and they are singing hymns to God. And I know that I've spoken on this passage before, but the prisoners were listening. I don't think they had any choice, right? Because these guys are singing. Now, whether they're singing at the top of their lungs or singing quietly, I don't know. Um, but they're singing and they're praying. And so they're, 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 doing, they're doing something that seems so out of the ordinary, right? And... When we, uh, when we think about the things that, that they are, are doing here, I think it's certainly healthy to try to picture the situation. So they're praying and they're talking to God, I, I'm sure, about the things that they're going through. And I found it interesting that Robertson, in his word pictures, he's the one that does uh, different pictures in the scripture, uh, he said, one thing he brought out is it, that midnight is the middle of the night, you know, somewhere, uh, you know, way away from the, the sunset and way away from the sunrise, the middle of the night. And they were uh, praying and singing, simultaneously blending together their petitions and their praise. Uh, and he said it's an old verb form that they use. And uh, he wondered if Paul and Silas were using portions out of some of the Psalms, you know. 
but but here's an interesting comment by him. And I looked up the word. I don't know how he comes to this, but listen to what he says. He says uh, it is a rare verb to to listen with pleasure as to a recital or resuscitation or music. It was an experience for the prisoners and wondrously attractive entertainment to them. Now, I'm not sure where he derives that from, but this is a, a Greek scholar. And I just tried to picture what the rest of them were thinking about these two lunatics who are praying and singing to God after they had been through what they had been through. And so I'm sure that there's lots of questions in these guys' minds about what's going on, the people around them. But this becomes so critical to the story, doesn't it? Because they are listening. They are paying attention to what's going on. They may not have all the pieces together yet, but they are listening. And so... We read then in verse 26 that the, uh, admit, uh, excuse me, suddenly there was the great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And so we have this earthquake. You know, and earthquakes are definitely uh, prominent through the scripture. They are referred to several times, uh, both in terms of prophetic pictures, but when the Lord had died, there was that earthquake and the tombs were opened. Uh, there, there was the quake and, the, and his tomb was open and all of those kind of things. And so earthquakes we see in a scientific way are simply a response from the earth uh, letting off a little steam, right? But if God is greater than the things of nature, then God can choose to use them as he would see fit. Any of you ever been in an earthquake? I've been in a couple. One was a 5-5 on the Richter scale, so it was enough to let you know something weird was happening. Uh, the TV was dancing on the stand like a ping pong ball, right? And I was sleeping right under it, so I'm glad it didn't fall on me because in those days they probably weighed 100 pounds. Um, but notice that it says that uh, there was a great earthquake. It wasn't just a little tremor. It was a strong earthquake. <clears throat> but what I find fascinating about it is it describes not only the fact that the prison walls were shaken, the roof, which I assume there was a roof on it, did not collapse, right? So it shook the whole place, but it didn't destroy it. And the other things that happen is within the process of it, the doors are opened and the chains were loosed. Does that normally happen when you have an earthquake? No. And so you see all of this is the hand of God working in such a way to, again, demonstrate who he is in his power. And so you have this amazing situation with a, a controlled explosion, if you would. Right. And really just amazing to think about all the features that are tied up into it. And it's so it says all the doors are open and all the chains fall off. And so, again, a little phrase that I hadn't really paid attention to uh, prior to that. OK. So verse uh, 27, the keeper of the prison, the keeper of the prison uh, awakes. Right. 
Keeper of the prison, awaking from his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Now, I raise the question, is the keeper of the prison supposed to be a sleeper? You know, is the keeper a sleeper? And, you know, is that, is that you know, is he, you know, sleeping on the job? I don't, I don't know if that was allowed. I don't have no idea. But he wakes up from his sleep. And the first thing he deduces is the doors are open, and now I'm in a heap of trouble. And so I think we all understand that in the Roman culture, if you had a prisoner and he escaped, uh, your life for his life. And so he was doing the honorable thing. He was about to kill himself. And so to me, what is interesting here is not so much what happened so far, but the fact that Paul with a loud voice says, do, not, do yourself no harm, for we are all here. And so as awesome as the miracle is, what fascinates me even more is why didn't the prisoners flee? What kind of men are these? Are these reputable people? I mean, obviously Paul and Silas we think are reputable. But what about people in prison? Are they socially conscious and take care of the needy old ladies? Are, are they totally selfish and whatever, right? Me, myself, and I, what would be the first thing you would do if you were a prisoner? You would bolt out that door so fast you wouldn't even see my shadow. And yet, none of them left. So we have to ask the question, why not? And all I can think is that because of the crazy situation with this Paul and Silas singing and praying there was something that captivated their interest right and so instead of you know running out the doors everybody stayed where they were and that absolutely fascinates me because again if one of them had escaped what would this soul this man had done he would have killed himself and so it astounds me that instead of running for the hills, they all stayed where they were. And so they stay where they are. Now, here's a technical question. The man is going to ask for a light in the next verse, so that means it's dark where they were. How did Paul and Silas know that nobody had left? I don't have the answer to that. Maybe he didn't hear footsteps. I don't know. But somehow he knew everybody was there. And as far as I can see, they were. But they didn't leave. And Paul and Silas says, do yourself no harm, for we are all here. So then he called for a light. That is the jailer, calls for a light, runs in, and falls down trembling before Paul and Silas. Think about those three things. He calls for a light. Sounds like he has men under him. Hey, somebody fetch me a light. He runs in. He doesn't sashay in. You know, he goes running in there because something crazy is going on, and he's got to get to the heart of it, the bottom of it. And he falls down trembling. Trembling. Now, I don't know if this man is a retired soldier, but he understood the protocol of what he was. I would not think this was a gentle man, you know, a soft, easygoing man. You're running a prison. You are tough cookie, right? And what is he doing? He is trembling, trembling. Because I think some of the reality of all that's going on is just hitting this guy. And so he is absolutely fearful. 
And so he's trembling before them. And Paul, uh, he says to them then, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now again, very strange wording. If you say to an unbeliever today, you need to be saved, how, what kind of look do you get from the people? Saved? Saved from what? What are you talking about, man? And, and so, and yet, where did he come up with the words? Did he just invent the phrase? And again, it leads me to think somewhere, somehow, he had gotten some information. Whether he had seen Paul and Silas preaching around, whether he had heard the accusations by the magistrate, whether he had heard some of the things that were said, whether he heard their prayers, because here's another problem. He's asleep, right? So if he's asleep, could he have heard what Paul and Silas were praying and saying or uh, singing, right? I don't have the answers, but it's such an interesting question. What must I do to be saved? And so he understood the ramifications in a way that is so interesting. And what is their answer? Believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. All right, so here's something that is very interesting to me. Believe is in the active voice. That means you have to do it. You as the person have to believe. And then you shall be saved. So what do you think? Is saved in the passive voice or the active voice? It's in the passive voice. Because you don't save yourself. Somebody else has to save you. It's the blood of Jesus. His death for us. That's what saves us. And so you have to believe and God will do the saving. It's the simplest phrase probably in the scripture about the gospel, right? Trust in Jesus. Put your faith in him as the one who died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins and you shall be saved. Uh, Ironside talked about a man who was the chaplain for the British Army. And he said to the man that as young men were being interviewed to be chaplains, he would ask them the question, what would you tell? Here's a man who's wounded. He might not live for another five minutes. What would you say to him? And if these guys went on to, well, this is the one true church, and you got to do this, he'd say, no, you're not qualified. He looked for the ones that would say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's the heart of the gospel. Those other issues are secondary. Where do you stand before the risen Holy Savior and trust him as your Savior? And I thought that was very interesting the way he put it. And, and so he speaks to him about him and his household. And the whole issue of the household is brought into this. How that comes into the picture, I don't know. Did Paul and Silas know of the household? I don't think so. But he's talking about these details. And so what happens at the end of the section then, it says in verse uh, 32, then he spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And so we've moved from the prison to the house. And he's speaking the word of the Lord. And so he's telling them, he's adding the detail that we don't have, but he's telling them the truth of God and the things that were necessary. And so then it says in verse 33, he took them that same hour in the night and he washed their stripes. And immediately he and his family were baptized. Have you ever thought about this jailer washing their stripes? He wasn't responsible for them being beaten. 
And yet, I'm sure when they were brought to him, he's like, I eh, don't give a rip. You know, they got what they deserved. And then all of a sudden, he's beginning to see these were innocent men. And so he takes and he treats them with, with kindness. And the family gets baptized. Uh, <clears throat> and then it says in verse 34, when they had brought them into his house, he set food before them and rejoiced, having believed in God and all his household. And so here this man goes from being uh, alienated, separated from the things of God, and he sits them down and he pu puts food on the table for them. What a tremendous transition. And then the last part of the chapter, and again, Brother Ken addressed some of this. These were Roman citizens. They could have brought this issue up at the beginning, but guess what? If they brought that issue up when they were arrested, would Paul and Silas have ended up in prison? No. And so one of the bigger questions that we have to ask here is, why did God let them go through all of this? Because it was through their suffering that this man gets saved. And so how could God let Paul and Silas go through all of this suffering? How could God let them do that? Does he not care? But then I think we have to ask the bigger question, what did God let his son do? And wasn't it much worse than anything that you or I could ever go through? And so sometimes there is going to be some suffering. And so I asked myself the question, what would I do? You know, I, 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 when, they were, when they were in there singing their song, I, I thought of a song that I might have sung. It would have gone something like this. Woe is me, can't you see? Why do all these things happen to me? You know, or something like that, you know? And so we tend to look at our sufferings as burdens. But, but we, I need to see that adversity is always there for the glory of God, whether I'm to learn something from it or do something with it. And I am so slow at learning that lesson. I confess it, I confess it. But this is what I think is one of the things we're supposed to take out of this, that God will sometimes use our sufferings to speak to the hearts of others in ways that no one else could. And so you think of what they went through. But there's a couple of things I want to say at the end. Number one, they, their respectability is restored because these magistrates, why did they come and release them? I have to think that as they thought the thing over, they had no case against them. And so, and now they find out they're Roman citizens, and they could have made a big issue of it, right? But what did he make them do? He made them come and do it themselves rather than just slip them out the door. But do you notice how the chapter ends? It says, they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. Well, that's where we started, right? He was, they were with Lydia. And so they come out of the prison. Do they leave town like they were asked to do? No. What did they do? They go to the brethren, and they encourage them. And then they departed. And I don't know who it was that said, there was the church at Philippi beginning. And so they, those, that Lydia and the people that were there and the folks that got saved, that became the beginning of the church in Philippi. And so it's exciting to see that they ministered to them, and they left. So it begins with Lydia. And they make full circle and they come back. But now this to me is probably the most exciting part that dense old me finally got out of this. Remember 
it was a man of, uh, verse 10, after, well, let's see, verse 9. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Who was the first man in Macedonia that got saved that we know of? The jailer. And Ironside suggests that that was the plea of that man's heart. Now, I have no way of proving that. And there were some men associated with Lydia, I think, than her household and so forth. But, but here's even the better point. They couldn't go here. They couldn't go there. They went here. Lydia, the easiest person, right? Her heart, she was ripe. She was ready for the, for the harvest. She gets saved. What about this servant girl? Did she amount to anything? Is she worth anything? Now we read nothing of what happened to her. Nothing, right? Except that she gets the demon out of her. I, I hope and pray that the reality of what God was offering, that she responded to that. But we know that she was at least put in her right mind. Remember again the man with the legion of demons, right? He was sitting in his right mind at the feet of Jesus. And one of the points is if somebody is, is controlled by the demonic forces that strong, they aren't capable of making choices. They are, they are captive. But when you take the demon out, now the individual has their personal responsibility. But what did she do? Minimally, she was delivered from being possessed by a demon. And I sure hope and pray she went way beyond that to recognize Jesus as her Savior. But then the third story is this jailer and his whole household gets saved and her household gets saved. And so the way that God works, he always works through the individual. So remember your pattern in Acts. Thousands come to the faith, this man gets saved. Thousands come to the faith, this individual gets saved. This is the God of the individual. For God so loved the world that whatever individual believes in him, right? That's the gospel. And so, again, you see this beautiful pattern of how God weaves the multitudes and the individuals. But they were, that was on God's mind when he sent them to Philippi, that he would reach these people and God begins the church there. All right, so I'm sure I'm way over time as usual, sorry. All right, Lord, we just thank you for the time that we could think on these things, and we just thank you for the powerful messages that are here. We thank you for the victory, as our brother Peter reminded us. And Father, we just know that that victory is continuing, and I pray for the hearts of those that do not understand that Jesus loves them, that he died on the cross to pay the penalty for their sins, that if they reject that, that he's got nothing else to offer, and they will be responsible for their sins for all of eternity. Oh, Father, I just pray that you speak to each and every one of our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh, one, one cool, uh, what do you want to call it, postscript. Ironside said that of those two singing, that this was the first Christian concert in Europe. <laughs> I thought that was a great comment. <clears throat>